When disaster strikes, one group is often blamed. They were blamed for the Black Plague in the Middle Ages, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, and the mass shooting at an elementary school in Sandy Hook. Whatever the catastrophe, anti-Semitic extremists point the finger at Jews. And now, conspiracy theorists are blaming Jews for a new tragedy, coronavirus. According to the Anti-Defamation League, some extremists claim that Jews created the virus so that they could profit from a market crash. Others claim the plan is to profit from a vaccine. And still others say the aim is to kill non-Jews. In other words, this new coronavirus is a biological weapon. It's easy to look at these accusations um, and to look at anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic tropes and to sort of see these things as being eternal because, you know, they pop up everywhere, they get invoked so often, they get sort of brought up in so many places. So it's easy to see these things and to forget that they really do have a history, that each of these accusations, each of these tropes, each of these stereotypes, you know, emerges in a particular time and place and context. That's Rowan Doran, an assistant professor of history at Stanford University and an affiliate faculty member in the Jewish Studies program. One particularly vicious theory states that Jewish people murder Christian children. This story dates back to a 12th century book called The Life and Passion of William of Norwich. It's essentially the first narrative that we have of an accusation that will persist for the next thousand years almost, that was consistently leveled against Jews, accusing them of ritually murdering Christians. Uh, and it becomes the template for hundreds and hundreds of later accusations that lead to the deaths of thousands and even, even millions in some ways uh, of Jews. The story had lasting power, but it didn't convince the people who read it first. Almost no one in Norwich believes it. The people who are in this place find it completely unconvincing. But it's when it spreads beyond that context that it suddenly takes on this or this disembodied power. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Rowan Dorn to discuss the life and passion of William of Norwich. Little is known about Thomas of Monmouth, the author of this text. What scholars do know is that he was a monk living in England in the 12th century. As his name suggests, he was likely born in Monmouth in southeast Wales. And what's interesting about him is that Monmouth and, and southern Wales in general had a really robust tradition of storytelling in this period. So someone else from Monmouth, Geoffrey of Monmouth, is in fact the figure who really did the most of any medieval writer to develop the Arthurian legends, so the legends of Arthur and Merlin. So wherever Sir Thomas is from, he's, he's at least born into a community uh, that has a very compelling storytelling tradition. He came from a land of stories, but he didn't stay there for long. And then at some point in his life, uh, he moves to a monastery in the English town of Norwich, which is about 100 miles northeast of London as the crow flies. And there he discovers a tale about a young boy who'd been murdered a few years before, uh, a young boy called Little William. So what had happened essentially in a nutshell is that in 1144, about six years before Thomas starts his writing, a young boy was found dead in the woods. Um, with various signs of sort of wounds and, 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 uh, and suffering. And within about a week or two, the boy's family accuses the local Jews uh, of Norwich of having murdered him. The Bishop of Norwich 
seems to pick up this accusation uh, and sort of runs with it a little bit. But the local sheriff says, you know, there's nothing here. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is not going any further. I don't buy the accusation. Uh, cease and desist, as it were. For the most part, the townspeople heeded the sheriff's warning and ignored the rumors. By and large, no one's paying much attention to this young boy. And then Thomas shows up in this town and becomes a monk at this cathedral and decides that he is going to turn this boy into a saint. Thomas becomes obsessed with the story of little William. It's not enough for him to just spread the rumor around. He decides to put the story in writing. He spends the next two decades of his life writing the life and passion of William of Norwich. So tell us more about the book itself. How is it structured? What is it like to read? It's divided into seven books, sort of seven sort of subsections, as it were. And the first book basically lays out the murder itself. You know, who was this young boy? How innocent he was? How Christ-like in his goodness? And how he's sort of this wonderful and shining. He never sins. And he's this perfect child. And of course, you know, who knows, in fact, what this boy was like as a young figure. But he has to do this to build up this young boy as being this perfect, young, innocent, sort of sacrificial victim. And so the first book sort of builds this up and then talks about, in fact, this day in the spring of 1144, when someone comes to the boy's mother. The man offers to buy little William from his mother and says he will train the boy to be a cook in the kitchen of an important neighbor. And there's this whole story of the mother sort of thinking, oh, what should I do? And should I sell my sort of son off to go do this? And decides, okay, I will. And so, you know, silver is exchanged, which of course is attempting to draw on the image of Jesus being sold uh, for 30 pieces of silver. Throughout the book, Thomas of Monmouth draws parallels like this one. Jesus Christ was sold to his death in the Christian Bible, just like little William. And then the story goes into how he is then brought into the house of the Jews of Norwich, uh, who then proceed to murder him in the most terrible of ways. Uh, the Jews tie a rope around his head with five little knots so that he'll end up with sort of five wounds to correspond to the five wounds that Christ supposedly suffered. Um, and then they hang him between sort of the posts of their house so they'll seem like a crucifixion. And then had to figure out how to dispose of the body. The murderers supposedly dump his body in the woods. When it is discovered, some members of the Christian community accuse their Jewish neighbors. This is where the first volume of The Life and Passion of William of Norwich ends. Despite Thomas's efforts, most of the people in the community were still skeptical about his story. So in his second book, Thomas took it one step further. And the second book is really Thomas's effort where he tries to allay all the doubts and skepticism that has sort of surrounded this boy. Because it's very clear that most people thought this is some kid who just, you know, ran into an unfortunate band of marauders or, you know, who knows what terrible thing happened to him. But there's no evidence to connect the Jews to it. And there's absolutely no evidence that even if some Jew, in fact, did murder this young child, that it's any sort of martyrdom or, or there's any kind of religious aspect to this. And so book two is his effort to lay out how, in fact, there is a religious background to this. And this is where he really starts spinning out conspiracy theories around why it is that the Jews did this to young William. Could you go through his claim about why the Jews mm -hmm. um, thought it was important to, to murder poor little William? Sure. So this is actually why this text ends up being so important, because when Thomas starts writing this, uh, one of the problems that he's facing is that he can't explain why the Jews would do all these horrible things to this young child. And it's clear that there's a lot of skepticism around this account, that 
even if people in Norwich think that you know Jews they're the, they're the evil other and they're refusing to believe in Christian truth and they're obstinate and they have strange rituals, it's very difficult to understand why they would sort of murder a young boy in this elaborate way. But the point is that one of the things that Thomas starts doing in the first book is that he says, well, it's because they hate Christ and they hate Christians and they want to sort of mock the crucifixion of Christ. And that clearly does some work for him. It clearly helps to explain in this first instance. But what really sort of clinches it is in the second book, he says that he spoke to a monk called Theobald in his monastery. And Theobald was a former Jew who converted to Christianity. And Theobald tells Thomas, and he sort of writes this breathlessly in his text, that every year Jews gather essentially in southern France and they choose one community that's going to have to sacrificially sort of murder a Christian child. Theobald explains that the Jewish community had been told in a vision that the only way they could return to the Holy Land of Israel is by sacrificing a Christian child. And so that suddenly gives him this story because he can say, you know, I heard it from an actual Jew and it's part of an international conspiracy and that's why they're doing this. And so it's no longer about what Jews in Norwich are doing. It's about what Jews everywhere are doing. And suddenly that turns this from being sort of a local horror story into the expression of an international conspiracy. What's important there is that this is really one of the first broad conspiracy stories that we have uh, around Jewish behavior. Uh, the idea that, in fact, Jews are gathering to plan these things, to do things across sort of around the world. We're used to that now in the 21st century, these anti-Semitic sort of tropes and canards that get played out. But in the 12th century, this is really quite new. Scholars don't know why Theobald told this story to Thomas or how much of it he believed. But it wasn't all lies. There had, in fact, been a gathering of Jewish leaders in southern France just before William's death. So it's not like this is being invented out of complete fantasy. There's this shred of evidence that there had been a Jewish gathering. They, you know, all the leaders had gotten together. But then he spins out what happened at this, and that then provides exactly what Thomas needed, which is the justification that turns William from just being a murdered child into a saint. By this point, people had been falsely accusing Jews of ritual murder for centuries. This accusation is called blood libel. And I think what's important about you know, the blood libels is, is the term makes it clear that this is a false accusation. You know, there's not a shred of evidence that any Jews anywhere have done this. Um, and yet what's interesting is that it's only in you know, recent decades that scholars have stopped trying to prove that Jews didn't do this, which was you know, really the mode that Jews tried to defend themselves. And to start asking instead, well, why is it that anyone would ever believe that they would? You know, what is going on in medieval Europe and then early modern Europe and then in modern Europe that would make it believable sort of for anybody to imagine that this ludicrous story would in fact be true? Uh, and that's what really a lot of really thoughtful work has gone into over the last 30 years, really, um, of trying to understand what were the conditions at the time? What are the conditions afterwards that make these sorts of accusations so powerful and allow them to spread so effectively? Over time, the story evolved. The returning to the land of Israel argument sort of dies off, and instead what gets substituted is the idea that Jews need to do this because they need Christian blood in order to make unleavened bread for Passover. Blood is a part of the Jewish holiday of Passover. 
In the biblical story, Jews in Egypt mark their doors with lamb's blood, so the angel of death will pass over their houses. But in Europe, this biblical story gets woven together with accusations of blood libel, and it turns into a new story of Jewish people killing Christians and using their blood to make bread. So, to recap, in book one, Thomas connects William to Jesus and claims that William is a saint. In book two, he says that there is an international conspiracy to kill Christian children. In the next five books, Thomas tells of the miracles that little William supposedly worked as a saint. And it's just sort of book after book after book of miracle after miracle after miracle. The lame can walk and the blind can see and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the Jews almost disappear. So it doesn't seem that Thomas was obsessed with Judaism or obsessed with Jews in general. As soon as they served his narrative purpose, they drop out of the story. And then it's just five books of miracles trying to convince readers that, you know, little William really is a saint and he really is doing wonderful things. And you all should come and kind of pay honor to him at the shrine that we built in the cathedral. So why did Thomas choose to blame his Jewish neighbors? This is a period in which hatred of Jews and anxieties around Judaism and concerns around a supposed Jewish set to Christendom are really escalating. You know, for the first thousand years of Christian-Jewish relations, obviously it's quite fraught, the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Uh, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of learned argument. Uh, there's even some sort of popular manifestations and violence. But by and large, most of that escapes Northwestern Europe there really aren't any Jewish communities living in Northwestern Europe until around the turn of the millennium. And so most of these discussions and debates and anxieties are playing out at a relatively theoretical level um, once you sort of get north of the Mediterranean. But Jewish communities start migrating north of the Alps in sort of the 10th, 11th centuries. The Jewish community in Norwich was relatively new. They had only arrived in England a few decades earlier. And so suddenly these Christian communities are being confronted with sort of these you know, unfamiliar Jews in their midst. And they're trying to make sense of them in light of what they've sort of heard and what they've read over the last thousand years of kind of Christian writings about Jews. And so by the time little William is murdered in 1144, there's already sort of heightened tensions. So let's talk about its immediate impact. What did people think about this book when it came out? And, and what was the reception and the influence in the first few decades and maybe even centuries? Even before Thomas writes, there's a few communities in continental Europe who've heard about Little William being murdered and who think that it was done by Jews. And sort of they write it in their books and saying, you know, in this year, a young boy in England was murdered by Jews. But there's no further elaboration. They don't say why it's the case. They don't say, you know, that it's a ritual murder or there's a crucifixion story or that it's part of a conspiracy. It's just, you know, one line. But once Thomas writes this text, the story spreads quickly, and others like it begin to pop up. Within sort of 15 years of the second book being finished, uh, we have another uh, noted accusation of ritual murder against Jews in another town in England. Uh, on the continent in France, by 1171, uh, dozens of Jews are burned alive for having apparently murdered a Christian child. In England, this continues down. There's a really important one in the 13th century, uh, and accusations continue. And on the continent, it begins to really spread in the 13th and 14th century. And every time, almost all the accusations fall sort of within the narrative framework that Thomas first establishes. And it starts to generate a lot of anxiety among Jewish communities because they're suddenly realizing that any time you know, a child goes missing. Anytime, you know, 
someone, you know, murders some child, or even in some cases where someone just has an axe to grind and wants to claim that something has gone wrong, they're going to be, you know, accused. The situation escalates until it reaches the Pope and the emperor. They consult with Jewish leaders, uh, and then they issue edicts saying, you know, not only that this is absolutely false, but that it is absolutely forbidden to even accuse Jews of doing this in the future. So there's a concerted effort from the very highest levels of leadership in both the Catholic Church and the, the empire at the time to shut this down. And of course, it doesn't work. Popes and emperors continue to reissue the ban on spreading accusations. But despite their efforts, the accusations continue to spread for centuries. In the 16th century, the rumors spread to the Muslim world. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire condemns the accusation, saying it's absolutely false. He forbids anyone from spreading it, but that doesn't stop it. There's a wave of accusations of blood libel and ritual murder against Jews in Eastern Europe in Poland in the 18th century. It persists in the 19th century. Uh, there's new waves in the late 19th century, even the early 20th century. Nazi propagandists made use of this story in imagery and Nazi literature. Anti-Semitic newspapers frequently accused Jews of ritually murdering Christians. Even after the Second World War uh, in Eastern Europe, there are still accusations of Jewish ritual murder that are being leveled against Jewish communities. And it continues occasionally to crop up in sort of extremist anti-Jewish literature, even in the Muslim world today. So, you know, these dark legends, no matter how many efforts have been made to stamp them out, no matter how many efforts have been made to sort of disprove them and show that they're based in nothing, continue to survive. Today, only one copy of The Life and Passion of William of Norwich exists, and few people know who Thomas of Monmouth was. Nobody has heard of him, no one pays attention to him, and yet this story that he invents, which is all just designed to promote his saint, ends up having such truly horrific consequences, you know, for the next, you know, 900 years. So my understanding of conspiracy theories is their attempts to simplify complexity the world is messy, it's hard to understand, bad things happen, evil is dispersed and diffuse, and the human psyche wants to focus it on a, a material subject that we can blame. You know, we struggle already in you know, the present day to understand, you know, serial murderers, um, let alone sort of just random one-off murders or accidents. And it's so much easier, as you say, to fit this into a narrative that makes complete sense of just, you know, random acts of, of, of tragedy. What have these scholars who have studied the rise of anti-Semitism since, I guess, the turn of millennium is particular, um, discovered about why anti-Semitism in particular um, has continued to have such um, strength? You know, if I had an answer to that, uh, you know, my book would be a bestseller and I'd be sort of everywhere. I mean, there's so many scholars trying to understand this. Uh, there's so many competing arguments. You know, I, was, I was giving a talk recently at a synagogue. Someone wrote to me afterwards and they said, you know, why is this, why are these tropes, why is anti-Semitism so powerful? You know, and the best answer that I could give was because it's easy um, in the sense that so much work has been done over the last 2,000 years, layers upon layers upon layers of accusations and stereotypes and lies and untruths, all building and building and building on the Jewish community, that it makes it easier to hang any new charge on that rather than doing all the work of either sort of, you know, figuring out what's actually going on or even lobbying against a new, 
a, a different community. Thomas exploited these stereotypes, but some parts of his story were based on true events. So there's these traces in, in this book that aren't completely fantastical. They're anchored in something, just like, again, when, you know, the accusation of a Jewish conspiracy, well, you know, Jewish leaders had gathered in southern France. You know, there are other practices that if you sort of try to piece your way through the weird, distorting lens of this hatred, you can see how someone would hear that and say, oh, you know, I've seen that too, or, oh, I've heard of this too. And so one of Thomas's, you know, extraordinary gifts as a storyteller is weaving all these puzzle pieces together in such a way that, you know, to a casual reader of this text, you would think it's believable, um, that all of these pieces, unlikely as each one is independently, add up to something that allows you to make sense of a tragedy that otherwise just seems inexplicable. So I think we've covered um, a lot of what this book is about and, and the impact it had. It might be helpful to just kind of re-articulate of all books um, to, to be talking about, to be learning about in this series on, on the books that change the world. Why, why did this book change the world? How did it change the world? Most books that can claim to have changed the world had a lot of readers. And we know they had a lot of readers. And this is a book which we know very little about its readers. We don't know how many people actually sat down and read the text. We don't know how many people had access to copies of this text. All we know is that the narrative that this text creates spreads across England, across France, into Germany, then down to the Mediterranean, then into the Muslim world. And the elements that this one author pulled together to make sense of a horrific act and to make a particular accusation that the act had been done by Jews, to make that believable and persuasive, that those elements that he pulled together end up spreading sort of, you know, around the world. And I think that's a revealing and sort of terrifying feature of this book which is that we can trace this fear and this hatred back to a single text that no one's ever heard of. Um, and yet it still had such power. This book has been translated into English and is being read now more than ever. Hopefully, readers today will recognize its inaccuracies and not perpetuate the lies and rumors that have so negatively impacted the world. What makes this book so powerful is not the book as a, as, as a physical book. You know, it's, it's strange in that most books that change the world have a lot of people who read them. What made this book so powerful is that the story that it told could be retold and retold and retold um, in all these different places, among all these different communities, even when they didn't have the book. Because the actual, the logic and the narrative that he put together so compellingly and so perversely that was so powerful. But it's, in some ways, it's precisely the fact that this, this book became a template for how to accuse Jews of doing horrible things in your community whenever you need a scapegoat to find. And that happened again and again and again and again, you know, and it still lurks as an accusation even today in sort of dark corners of the world and dark corners of the internet. Um, which is impressive for, you know, a book that most people didn't believe when it was written in its own community. What does the world look like if, if Thomas doesn't write this book? 
would another book have come along with similar features? Or, I mean, we can't know, but... You know, I suspect that somebody would have eventually taken the pieces together um, and told a different story. And in fact, in the ancient world, uh, there is an accusation that's leveled of Jews uh, engaging in cannibalism, that, that Jews took a Greek... Um, victim and sort of fattened him up and slaughtered him every seven years. Um, and that accusation sort of does spread in the ancient world and it's found in a few texts. And then there's another accusation that sort of pops up in, I think, the 5th century that as part of the festivities of Purim, which is a Jewish holiday, um, that Jews would in fact sort of ritually enact a crucifixion. Uh, and so that too sort of, you know, someone come up with that idea. What's interesting about in both those cases is that they largely get forgotten. There's absolutely no evidence that anybody in subsequent centuries was paying attention to these texts. You know, they survive in sort of stray manuscripts here and there, but no one comments on them, no one uses them. Thomas certainly didn't know about them. They lay sort of inert and powerless. So to some extent, you know, is it possible that somebody else would accomplish some new accusation? Absolutely. But I do think that his particular narrative gifts did have some impact on allowing this particular accusation to become so widespread. Is there anything else about the text that you wanted to share that we didn't cover so far? I think one of the things that I find, let's say, somewhat comforting about this text is how much evidence there is in it for skepticism and disbelief. Thomas gets so angry that no one believes that little William, you know, was a martyr, that he's a saint, that he was murdered by Jews for religious reasons. And it's, I find it, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the Middle Ages and thinking about sort of horrible things that happen, I find it somewhat reassuring that in fact a community into which his accusation is sort of, you know, thrown responds by just sort of shaking their heads and saying, you know, this is just nonsense. This is not a real thing. We're going to ignore this. Um, that even a time when there is a lot of tension between Christians and Jews, even there is a lot of misunderstanding, that most people in that community could look at this and think, you know, these are just kind of the ravings of, you know, of bereaved family members and a couple, you know, really agitated, angry people. And the fact that Thomas has to work so hard to kind of lay into those doubters and those skeptics, you know, I think does give me some hope that even in conditions in which everything would sort of seem to push us to believe the worst about people in our midst, that the capacity for sort of skepticism and disbelief and sort of pushing back, um, it's there. In some ways, it's incredibly reassuring that the people in Norwich were so skeptical like, like we know these guys. Mm -hmm. we, we, we live with them. Right. We knew little William. He was not a saint, <laughs> you know. I mean, he was just a little ragamuffin running around doing whatever. But, you know, all this stuff about him being sort of, you know, so saintly. And then the idea that this community of Jews would do that, it's just... And, you know, there's a lot of elements in Thomas's story when he says things like, you know, as the Jews have always done or as Jews elsewhere have done or, you know, as is their custom. And so he he inserts language that suggests that, you know, everyone knows that they do this. But in fact, you know, this is the first time that anyone's putting this in writing. You know, no one does know this. But then you read it afterwards and it just seems to be fitting into, you know, this broader pattern. But that's all part of his gifts as a storyteller um, that end up concealing the novelty of what he's doing. You know, he's not presenting this as, I'm the first person to record this. He's presenting himself as, you know, 
I'm just telling what happened here, but I'm part of a long tradition of kind of, you know, that's already been sort of talking about this. Uh, and that makes it even more sort of, you know, devilishly persuasive as, 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 a, as a rhetorical device. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that ends up being so terrifying in, in Eastern Europe um, and, and Mediterranean Europe and the Islamic world is that these accusations can often get brought up in contexts in which people have lived side by side for a long time. And clearly, you know, they're just kind of sitting there ready to be invoked when conditions become appropriate. And yet, you know, there's already so much antagonism and fear and, 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 and anxiety and hatred that, you know, throw this one, this, you know, the one match into this powder keg and boom. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferron Du, and our intern is Liza French. Our branding is by Dan Petchy. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And you also heard music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what others are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next week on Writ Large, I sit down with Harvard professor Philip Deloria to discuss Black Elk Speaks. Black Elk Speaks was co-written by a Oglala Lakota holy man and a white Nebraskan poet, and it helped to shape the way white Americans and Native Americans understood Native culture. You can hear this episode right now in the Lyceum app. This is the best-selling book of all books authored by a Native person and probably all books about Native people. So... For some people, it may not be a sort of best-selling popular book, but in fact, it is a best-selling popular book. It is the single book that has determined the ways that many, many people think about, about Native folks. Don't miss it. Subscribe now in the Lyceum app or wherever you listen to podcasts.